HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant. Learn more at KermitLynch.com. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at Roberta'sPizza.com. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Dustin Wilson. We'll talk to Dustin about the quartermaster sommeliers, the pandemic, retail wine, and opening a new restaurant. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Born on the East Coast, Dustin Wilson headed west to make his mark in wine at Frasca, Little Nell, and RN74, eventually heading back east as wine director of 11 Madison Park. Dustin packed and worked in the floor to pivot towards wine retail, creating Verve Wine in New York, San Francisco, and now Chicago. He has also raised money for No Kid Hungry through his Raboul de Rhone events. And you know his face as the only person in the first Psalm movie to pass and become a master sommelier. Dustin Wilson, along with his partner, Chef Austin Johnson, are about to open one of the most anticipated restaurants in New York City, One White Street. Welcome back to the Grape Nation, Dustin. Thank you so much. Great to be here, Sam. We are talking to Dustin remotely, as we've been doing for the past year uh, via Zencaster. Dustin, where are you right now? I am actually at our new restaurant right now. Okay, we're going we're gonna to get into that uh, pretty heavily. But before we do that, I want to jump on a few other topics with you, okay? Sure. Yeah, let's do it. All right, so you've been a master sommelier for about a decade. Um, we know that in the past few years, the court has gone through some serious sexual harassment, testing, and diversity issues and scandals. And friends of yours, many prominent master sommeliers have turned back their pins. So I ask you this, is the court still relevant? And does that pin carry any sway? What's your thoughts? Yeah, great questions. Um, I can't believe it's been a decade already. Um, Yeah, really. Ages me. Um, (laughs) Gray hair. uh, I know. If I had hair, Sam. I was I saying, hair. sunburn head. Go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, the court of MS, is it still relevant? I think the answer is yes. Um, this, this is a deep question. So I guess my, my thoughts on it are um, it's had its issues in the last several years uh, between the, the cheating scandal and the harassment issues and, and uh, diversity and inclusion kind of 
lack of, um, or lack thereof, I should say, uh, in the organization that's come to light um, or, or become more of a, a topic uh, over the last year. Um, you know, I, it's, it's definitely seen brighter days as an organization, um, but I also think this was kind of coming to a head with, uh, with the CMS. I think, um, you know, the way that that organization started and how it was functioning for, you know, the several decades leading up to these last few years, um, it was a smaller organization. It wasn't as popular. Um, you know, social media didn't exist. Uh, the, the world was different. Um, right. just th there's a lot of things that were just different about the organization when it started. Um, and also, you know, for the, the first few decades that it existed, um, it was very small. You know, I think the movies did a lot to, um, to bring attention to the organization. It exploded in popularity. Um, the world is obviously much more connected nowadays via social media and whatnot than it was even just 10 years ago when I, when I passed. Um, so lots changed. Um, and I think the way that they used to operate and the way that the test was given and the, um, the, the kind of internal culture, if you will, of that organization needed to change. Um, it, it just couldn't, it couldn't continue to operate in that small kind of you know, boys club fashion, uh, that it did for, for a long time. And, you know, I remember when I first passed, um, you know, kind of having a weird feeling on, on night one, uh, when, when I passed and there was like a, almost a bit of a, a fraternity like hazing in the beginning of the, right. uh, of the dinner that I attended as my first, very first introduction into becoming a master Psalm. And, um, and I remember looking at, uh, at McClintock, who was sitting right next to me, or like two seats away or something. Like, dude, what? <laughs> what do we get into here? This is weird. Um, right. But I just kind of wrote it off. I was like, you know, th this is kind of what they do to the new people. You know what I mean? Um, but that was the no. culture, though. But that was the culture then. And, you know, I, at the time, I didn't really think too much about it. Um, it just kind of passed. Um, you know, I got really involved in, in doing intros and certifieds and did a few advanced exams and things like that. And I just kind of went through the paces as a, as a normal person that goes through the MS does, you know. And um, to me, I think the first, uh, the first kind of challenge, I guess, mentally that I had with the organization was when the cheating scandal hit. And I just didn't like the way that it was handled. Um, I personally kind of pushed back a little bit just internally, um, you know, sent some emails to to the organization leadership. Um, those emails were not um, received well, <laughs> I guess. Right. Um, and, you know, frankly, it just kind of it pissed me off a little bit because, you know, I was very respectful in those emails and, and I thought I was being respectful in my approach, but it wasn't taken that way. And um, that kind of shed a lot of light to me and to the some of the, the, the culture that needed to really change. Um, you know, fast forward and, and uh, over the last year with the sexual harassment issues and um, their um, slow reaction to um, kind of the social unrest and whatnot of last year, um, just kind of really, I think, put the spotlight on the fact that um, some of the things that I think I saw and some other, a handful of other um, MSs saw within the organization that we thought needed to change were now amplified. Um, and I think while this moment is a, is a very challenging moment for the organization, I do think that they're taking the right steps now. Um, there's been kind of a critical mass of people, both internally and externally, that have pressured the organization to kind of recognize where its flaws are, acknowledge them, fix them, and and try to move forward in a, in a better way. Um, so I'm, just I'm, I'm I'm still hopeful for the organization. I, right. I personally am not. Uh, I, I have not turned my pin in, but I'm also not super, admittedly, very active in the organization at all right now. M right. Mainly due to my, I'm freaking busy with other stuff. But um, right. but I think um, you know there's been a changeover in leadership. There's a new board. Um, I think that new board is filled with some really smart, good kind of thoughtful people that are doing the right things. Um, so I think the organization's heading in the right direction now, 
but it's, you know, it's got some scars from these last few years, and I think it's going to take some time for all that to heal. So I don't yeah. think right now it's the most popular thing. It's not really cool to say that you're a master sommelier anymore. So, so to um, that point. But to I think that that'll point, change. I think that'll to, change. Okay, to that point, because I don't want to spend nearly, you know, more time on this um, than, you know, the other issues. Um, as things were happening... Did people not speak up when they could have or they did speak up and it was just sort of pushed aside? And I'm not talking about the women later on complaining about harassment or when the uh, test scandal was illuminated, just some of the stuff going on or culturally that was it was such a small group and nobody knew. I mean, what's your take on that? You know, it's it's hard to say. I personally didn't see um uh, you know, my involvement was I would do a handful of introductory courses right. here in New York, you know, three times a year, something like that, um, a certified, you know, attached to each of those. And once a year, I'd fly to go do the uh, the advanced exam, something like that was my right. kind so of those, routine. So those things so were... I, it those... Was very, my exposure to it was very limited, and I didn't necessarily see anything wrong per se. Um, right. You know, you would kind of sometimes hear little little whispers of stuff, you know, of people misbehaving or this person, you know, acted like this or, you know, you heard a rumor that somebody went out drinking and did X, Y, Z or whatever. But, um, but I never witnessed anything firsthand. So, you know, my, my, uh, my, my criticism of it was never actually what I saw on that end. It was more, right. um, I, I got upset with kind of how they were handling things from the cheating scandal and then, um, and then how they handled kind of the social um, responsibility last year, and they could have really stepped up and been a leader, and they kind of flopped right. on that. Um, All right. So I want to ask you a few questions. Answer them quickly, and sure. you know, let, let's move on. Um, do you think the court has the respect of its peers? You know, the people in the wine business, or it's uh, something I they have to earn back. I think right now it's something they need to earn back. Uh, like, and like I said, I, I think they can. I think it's going to okay. take some time. So the next question would be, do you think up-and-coming Psalms, and you were one at some point, which is why you even got into all of this, give a crap about the court? Um, I think right now there's a lot that – or there's probably less <laughs> right now than there was two years ago. Uh, but I think, again, that's going to turn around. Long time long, – long term, I think – it's going to have to, it's going to stay relevant because there's just not necessarily anything else like right. it. Um, so they just need to kind of fix themselves a little bit. And I think that can they long term, do you think they can, I think they can, I think it's going to take a long time for okay. some people to, to forgive them. Um, I think some people are just done with it and that's fine. Okay. But I think long term, you know, the wine industry is going to need an education body an examining body that does something like this to help the industry. Um, and to start something anew would be very, very difficult. This is a behemoth that exists. Um, I think if they can fix themselves and I think they'll continue to stay relevant, yeah. but you know, that's yet to be seen, but we'll see. I'm, right. I'm, I'm, I, I continue to be hopeful, but, um, they have a lot of work to do and they, but they know that they were aware of that. I agree that if anything happens, it's going to take time. Um, and you and I know a lot of people, you know, that are currently involved with trying to, you know, make that pivot, yeah. you know, so let's There's a lot of good people in there right now that are trying to make, make things better. Yeah. You know? Um, so let's, let's see what happens. We could revisit that, you know, at some point. All right. I want to talk to you about Verve Wine and One White Street. Yeah. Um, and I also want to talk to you about how the pandemic has affected everything. Let's, let's first talk about Verve Wine. Um, you know, I've had you on the show and you sort of gave me your journey in life and wine that got you to where you are. I mentioned some of the places you work. One of the things that I think is important, and I'm not that clear at, is why you decided to leave the floor, you know, at a place like 11 Madison, you know, Somming and, you know, a three Michelin star restaurant to open a retail shop in Tribeca. I think that was about five years ago. Just take a minute or two to tell me, you know, that thought process of the end of that, you know, pretty culmination of a good Psalm career and the pivot towards retail. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's kind of two parts. The first part being, <clears throat> um, 
you know, for, for personal reasons, uh, you know, running a wine program as, as that position, the wine director of 11 Madison Park is a, a massive commitment. Not that the other things I'm doing isn't, but um, it's, it's not super flexible. You know what I mean? My, yeah. my days were, you know, between 14 and call it 18 hours long sometimes, um, you know, at least five days a week, if not six, sometimes seven. So the, you know, I was 35 at the time um, looking ahead at my life and, you know, I'm a guy that, you know, I wanted a family. I wanted to be able to have some flexibility in my life. I wanted to see my friends and, and loved ones and whatnot on holidays and, and things like that, that you just can't really do when you're in that sort of environment or it's very difficult. It's not, you can't do it. It's, it's, it's extremely difficult to, to, to balance it in that sort of environment or in that role. Um, so part of it was that, you know, I was ready to, just kind of prioritize my myself a little bit in that regard. But then secondly is, um, you know, I had always had ambitions of, of doing something on my own. I, I always thought it would be a restaurant, um, but right. I actually saw a really big opportunity in the retail space to just do something a little bit differently um, than what, you know, existed out there in the world. So the vision for it was, you know, not just to open a little shop, but to kind of do more broadly what we're, what we're actually doing now that we're five years in, um, you know, which is multi-unit, national, very digital focused and e-commerce driven type of retail business that, um, you know, I think carries the types of wines that we love that are, you know, kind of restaurant-y that are very hand-picked, um, curated types of stuff, um, but with a, a very digital lean and a, and a focus on our, our marketing is very geared towards, you know, the, the new wave consumer. Um, and, when you, and the, when you say digital, are you implying two things? One is to get the message out digitally and is the other commerce digitally? I mean, correct. yeah, but, both I mean, both. Things. I think so. Talk to me a little about that. Yeah, it's not that you couldn't buy wine online before. It existed. Um, the, I think the people that were doing it well were businesses like, you know, wine.com and, um, you know, kind of the, the bigger BevMo and, you know, places like that that are big discount type stores. Um, but didn't they didn't, what, I, what they lacked for me was kind of the, um, the access to the kind of curated, geeky, fun you know, small production type stuff that, that I think a lot of us sommeliers and restaurant professionals tend to really enjoy. And, and a lot of guests too, you know, that, that didn't really exist. You could go buy a lot of those wines in great retail shops. Um, you know, if you ask me where to go shopping for great wine around New York city, I could probably list off at least a half a dozen really awesome places to go pick right. up a bottle of wine. that are great shops, no, no doubt. But the digital presence on their end was very, limited. Um, you know, if the inventory was even posted online, it wasn't very accurate. Um, and so that, that know, was you, important. Yeah. To, to me, it to was keep, important to, to keep know, like real a, time. I, you know, I was looking at people like myself who I buy a lot of stuff online, clothes or shoes or, uh, or whatever it may be. And, um, you know, I, I had a really hard time just finding good wine to purchase online. And I just, to me, I wanted to change that. Um, so I wanted to have a, an, a place online that was very friendly to, you know, younger consumers that like to purchase things online. Um, and but with the, the types of wines that we're really all about, that we're into. Right. So you 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 described a little about what you're doing and even a little different. You know, that's sort of your mission statement or how your mission statement developed, you know, to what you're doing. But like you said, it's been five years. How have things evolved, you know, now that you opened a third store? I mean, what's different? What have you learned? You know, what are you saying now? Like, gee, I wish I knew this now when I opened Tribeca. I, I mean, where where's the evolution here? <laughs> yeah, um, I mean we don't have enough time to list off all the things that I've learned. You know? Okay. <laughs> Give me the important stuff. I was pretty nice going into this. You know, I, I knew a lot about wine, but I didn't know, you know, if you, just knowing wine is, is like such a small percentage of what it takes to right. run a, run a, a business in general, nonetheless a retail business and retail is, is just so different from restaurants. Um, wine importers know, a, will tell big, you that too. 
big transition. You know, I think uh, I underestimated the the transition, but um, but you know, have gotten to learn a lot about it, and uh, I think from a business standpoint, where we've kind of evolved to is, you know, we, we kind of started with that digital focus um, that's grown, that's done really well. And we've kind of figured out, not fully, but we've, we've found a recipe that works for us on, on how to drive that part of the business. And, um, and it's done well, um, particularly actually through the pandemic, ironically. Um, but, you know, where we see kind of the future of us going or, or kind of where we're where we're putting our, our eggs is into this idea around um, kind of more holistic lifestyle piece with wine um, that, you know, people, when they tend to enjoy wine, they, they like it in very various aspects. Like they clearly like to go and learn about it and read about it and taste it and buy it and then drink it with food and enjoy it in a restaurant setting around, you know, a table with friends and things like that. So, you know, retail only touches kind of one piece of that, which is the transaction of purchasing wine to take home. Right. So kind of where we're going with it is like, how do we get our, our hands into those different, different aspects of people's wine life? You know, whether it's, um, you know, in Chicago now, for instance, we've got a wine bar restaurant, um, in that space. So, that's kind of the culmination of kind of what we're doing. So and wait, we've got, stop, stop there for a second. So the first place you open pretty much a wine store and everything you talked store. about is the evolution. Yeah. You Correct. know, why did it make sense in Chicago? Because it's something you should do. The space did it, something you wanted to do. It yeah, fits so we, into, we kinda, you know, the piece. What, what's It kind of is a, was a, a very slow evolution. You know, with New York, we, we had it's a pure retail space, but we did a lot of events and through parties and tastings and stuff. Cause we just want to get people into the shops. So we just did fun things to mm-hmm. attract people in there. Um, and it was a huge hit people loved it and they loved coming to the classes. They loved tasting. They loved being around people and learning and stuff like that. So, you know, when we opened San Francisco, which is our second location, um, we kind of leaned into that a little bit more. We've got a table that runs through the middle of the space. Um, we dabbled in pouring flights for people and having like a, little plates of cheese or, or nuts and olives and stuff like that, that you can have. It's not a full on wine bar, but it, you know, right. kind of feels a little bit like one, but then you're also there to shop, you know, you can buy things. Um, so, and that, and, and people loved it. They really liked coming and just hanging out and like tasting stuff and learning and talking to people about it. And they'd buy a few bottles on their way home. And, um, so when we did Chicago, um, we basically kind of took that idea of like, all right, we're, we're missing this hospitality element to, wine um let's lean into that even more and um so we opened a, a full restaurant effectively a full kitchen right. they're um, almost synonymous yeah. wine and hospitality great chef yeah so the, yeah. the idea with the space is you can come there not just just buy wine but you can you know you can attend a class and a tasting you can um you know come and sit at the bar and have a snack and try you know 10 different things at the bar if you want right. to or, you know, if you just like wine a little more, more passively, it's a great place to dine, you know, have have date night and come in and sit down and have a great meal and enjoy a bottle of wine that goes with it. And the best part about it is, like, if you like what you're drinking, you can buy a few bottles on your way out the door. Um, right. I mean, the number of times as, as a sommelier that I can't even count that a guest is like, oh, wow, this wine's great. You know, where can I buy it? And you're like, well, I'm not really sure. Let me list off five retailers around the city that might have it, but I'm not sure. Whereas this situation is, you like it, great. We've got right. you know cases of it in the back. You can so take some that, home with you. Is that you know? I would hope you dream about opening more locations. Is that the model for now? It's we're going to see how it works, right? Um, you know, and if it fits in the next opportunity, even if it if it goes the way we want it to, this could be the new model. Uh, it's too early to say we just opened you know it's it just got going so the the nice thing about chicago though is that's different from new york you can't really do that in new york um right just from a legal perspective the, the liquor laws here don't allow you to have an on-premise and an off-premise license in the same space right so it's a market chicago, by market thing. yeah yeah exactly there's certain um, markets in the, around the country where you can do that um a lot of places where you can't so tell me let's talk about the pandemic and verve um you alluded to it very quickly, but get into it. What effect did the pandemic have on retail wine and verve, you know, which are the same? You were able to fight through that because of? 
we, we made it through, honestly, purely because of um, the fact that we set our business up to be e-commerce focused from the beginning. Um, right. If we were... Uh, just if, walk in. If, if we were just walk in, if we were just a shop that didn't have that piece to the business, I don't know if we'd be around right now, to be honest. Um, right. You know, the when the shutdown came, I honestly, we, our whole team, we were kind of uh, expecting to just have to close. Um, I, <laughs> I was like reading about the difference between furloughing employees, laying off employees, like how we're going to do oh, it boy. the right way, like, you know, freaking out. And, uh, and then it came out that, you know, we were considered an essential business, which I laughed at. I was like, seriously? I was like, I guess so. I guess people need their booze. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, to essentially so we, get through the, to the next day. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so we lucked out. Um, but, you know, to keep our team safe, we, we shut down the stores for, for walk-ins. Uh, and we just turned everything digital um, and just went purely online. And, you know, we were already set up to be able to do that really seamlessly without, you know, too much effort. So was that so? Was that where you wanted it to be, or the pandemic? Because I have to compliment you. You know, the Verve site is wonderful, and it covered everything you talked about. It's become sort of this wine, holistic wine lifestyle thing. And I'm assuming every time you post, you know, whatever you're posting, you're selling that stuff because it's presented, you know, so well. Correct. Did you? Did the game even get stronger during the pandemic because everyone was sitting around and you were or you were there already? A hundred percent. It got it got way more intense and, and yeah and better. It ramped up. I you mean, had we, to. we had been we had been pushing towards that for a long time, and we we thought you know that was the long term um, winning strategy. But it was taking a while to get there. You know, there's a lot of strategy behind trying to get people to shop online that we just you know. You can put up a bunch of good wine on your site, but that doesn't mean people are going to come shop there. Um, so and it's, it's not its not a peripheral site or like a hobby site. I mean, there's a lot of thought and time put into it. Yeah. Besides um, the back room ordering and all that. But I mean, the art, you know, how well written it is and all that. I mean, it seems like it's a time consuming thing every week. Well, and also, like, did, you know, talk to any digital marketer. There's strategy around getting people to getting eyeballs on your site. Um, it's it's. It's tricky, um, and it's right. not necessarily There's our first. Too. It's not our. It's not our wheelhouse necessarily. So we had to learn that. But um, you know, where we were going, it, a majority of our business was still what happened know, physical store driven. It was walk-in driven, or it was phone calls, or it was neighborhood. Maddie, we lost you know, Dustin. Things like that. So um, the pandemic, when it happened, um, it really accelerated that him. e-commerce piece because it was the only way people could could order wine from us. Oh, and I think because we were only a, one of a, maybe a handful of places that was kind of doing that e-commerce what do thing you well, suspect it, um, is? it just, the business skyrocketed. Dustin, I had a question on online. Um, and you don't have to be super specific or, you know, even reveal numbers, but what percentage of the business as far as people buying wine comes from online? Yeah, we, I mean, leading into the pandemic, we were hovering around 20%. Um, right. And then when we had to shut things down, uh, we, we basically went to 100% online. Um, and, it's, and it was like that for majority of the last year. Um, Where do you think it'll end up? You know, it's hard to say. Our, our goal was always to hopefully be somewhere around 50 to 60% online okay. long term. Um, it looks like... You know, that may be the case for now. Uh, you know, once the world fully starts to come back to normal again, um, you know, I don't know how that'll change things. We'll see. I think it'll go uh, but up. It's, but it's been, it's been very good. Um, you know, the, the downside is our, our stores basically became fulfillment centers, warehouses uh, for most of the pandemic. You know, we, we shut it down to people walking in and... Um, you know, we're just packing boxes and, and bags and sending things out for delivery and getting stuff set up for pickup and whatnot, as I'm sure, you know, majority of everybody was doing. Um, so right. it, was, it was a bit of a pivot and challenge. But I mean, I'm, at the end of the day, we're really thankful. And, you know, I think our business was saved because we had that, that e-commerce piece right. um, ready, to, ready to go and all so, the infrastructure around it. A couple more things on Verve, or a few more things. Um, did people shift their wine preferences during the pandemic? 
I mean, did what you sell change? Yeah. I mean, did the yeah. price points go down? Did everybody switch to like rosé? I mean, what <laughs> what was the trend? Yeah, it was it was a lot of a price point thing. It was interesting to kind of watch the ebbs and flows of this. But uh, right when the first pandemic first hit, everybody was just loading up on cheap stuff. You know, the volumes went skyrocketed and the price points went down. So I think people were just, they just wanted drinkers, you know, for a day-to-day basis. Right. You know, they had their, their stock for the week and they'd reorder every week and just people plowing through wine um, just for stuff to drink at home. Um, and then at some point, maybe, I don't know, four or six months in or something like that, um, the, the mood definitely changed. And I think people who um, were waiting for whatever reason to start buying higher end stuff again, the higher end stuff just started rolling out the door again too. Right. Um, so the, the volume started to go back down again, but then people were spending a lot more on high end stuff. Um, which was where which they initially really were, right? Why. Yeah. We, we always kind of operated somewhere in the middle, you know, we don't, right. we, we have a lot of high end stuff, but that's not necessarily what we're known for kind of what, our target customer even is, is not necessarily I, I heavy collectors, but, um, you know, we had a lot of collectors and whatnot ordering some high end stuff for a good chunk of time there. Um, right. so it was interesting. I don't know exactly. It's hard to understand where that came from. Um, but from what I heard from other folks that I, I know in the industry in retail, um, it was pretty common. So while I have you talking about Verve and retail and wine, let me, tap into your expertise so answer this question in relation to store trends and your personal preferences wrapped into one tell me about some regions wines makers you know that are exciting you now i could sort of answer that by looking at the website and i would think that that answers it a little but you know take that question and you know kind of tell people what's kind of fun, cool, not necessarily new out there, but they should be looking at. Yeah, I mean, for me, over the last chunk of time, my, my favorite stuff has been a lot of a lot of Spanish wines. Right. Um, particularly, um, like, a lot of the stuff that, like, uh, Jose Pastor is doing uh, right. up, up in Galicia, um, as well as, you know, I'm a huge Commando G fan, um, and with Daniel Landy Daniel Landy? Yeah. yeah, and and his team uh, are doing it in Sierra de Gredos. I love those wines that like kind yeah. of more ethereal, really high toned, just uh, silky textured Grenache stuff is just man, I could drink that every day. Yeah. Um, so I'm definitely into Spain right now. Um, what about can, Canary Islands? You like that stuff? It's fine. It's okay. fine. It's you know I get it. It's trendy. Some of them are interesting. Um, I think the terroir there is, is definitely interesting. It's off the beaten path, and it's, it, there's a there's that to it. But um, you know, the wines for me are generally just just cool, just fine. I don't get like as jazzed up about them. Thank um, you for your honesty on that. So Spain, <laughs> and you mentioned some makers. Um, give me another, you know, region or winemakers that are exciting you. Yeah, I would say um, Italian wines. I'm kind of getting back into again. Um, I think. Part of it is being around Audrey more often. Audrey Frick, who's who's running our wine program for the restaurant as our wine director. She's, she's so also Audrey a, has a good background in wine. Explain what else she's doing. Isn't she um, working with Jeb now? She is. She's writing for Jeb. Um, she just on Italian. Did, on Italian stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And, you know, she comes from a Frasca and Tavernetta, Bobby Stuckey background, similar to me. Um, so she's got a lot of exposure to Italian stuff and, you know, I, I was deep in the Italian thing with Bobby for a while. Um, but then, you know, went off to the Lonell and R74 with Raj and then to EMP where, you know, really heavy Francophile stuff. So, um, you know, it's, it's kind of cool to be getting, dipping my toes back into to Italy more with her around. Um, so, you know, loving those things, um, you know, any big specific of- regions. I mean, I know Chianti's hot again, but what are you? Yeah, yeah, Chianti's good. Um, Chianti's always good. Brunello's always good. You know, Barolo, I've always loved Nebbiolo. Kind of the staples, you know, definitely love. But I think the more off the beaten path stuff, if you want to even call it that. Um, right. You know, I, I love Sicilian wines, Norello, which, mm-hmm. you know, was maybe off the beaten path a few years ago, but it's not anymore. Sure. Um, 
The uh, I also big fans of wines from Liguria in general. Um, you know, I love uh, Pigato and I love uh, like the Rosese. Is Vermentino from Liguria? Yeah, Vermentino and Pigato are, are very similar. Similar, um, okay. Yeah, that's some a good summer wine, it's, right? It's, totally, it's like briny, salty, high acid, yeah. um, really fun with with like fish and summery types of things. Um, you know, of course, I'm always love the uh, the Friuli and stuff. You know, that still has a, a good place in my heart from my Frosca days. So, all right, so I have to do this for my listeners, and again, nobody better than you. Um, and don't dwell on it. We're going into rosé season. And if people want to drink serious rosé, not a lot of the <laughs> stuff that's out there. Give me two or three things we should be looking at. Yeah, God. Uh, this is the every question every year, huh? Man. Well, you're on in May, <laughs> so you're stuck with it. I don't think I'd be asking you this around Christmas time. There's so much good rosé out there now. Um you know the level has has definitely so gone then away. regional way, should uh, it be Provence should it be every Italy you know it's, San it's, G- all, it's all over the place it's I mean there's good rosé all over the place now it's, so it's we'll take that as the this. answer the the game is so upped and there's so much good rosé out there talk to your wine retailer tell them what yeah you like. it was a lot harder you know a few years ago when um, you know you had to kind of fight tooth and nail to get people to drink. Like high right. quality rosé, but now there's high quality rosé everywhere. It's the market's it. flooded with it this time of year, so it's it's hard to miss at this point. I think. I think you know, which is sort of a testament to where rosé has gone, which is don't good. drink Whispering Angel. That's the only thing I'll say. How's that? Oh boy, overpriced. Okay, there overpriced. you go. Yes, it is don't, expensive. Do it is expensive. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This episode is brought to you by Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant, an importer, retailer, and wholesaler of fine wine from France and Italy, headquartered in Berkeley, California. In 1972, Kermit Lynch opened a retail shop in Berkeley, California with a $5,000 loan and a bit of gumption. He started with just 35 cases of wine stacked on the floor. Kermit grew his business from a retailer into a wholesaler and a national importer of wines from France and Italy. These wines are produced by small family growers who are committed to the old world traditions and culture. It is Kermit's belief that great wine is made in the vineyard, not the cellar. Much like his close friends, the late food writer Richard Olney and Chez Panisse's founder Alice Waters, Kermit's influence has been enduring. He has spent nearly half a century shining the spotlight on small artisan producers. Learn more at KermitLynch.com. K-E-R-M-I-T-L-Y-N-C-H.com. So let's uh, shift and talk about uh, your newest, latest, very exciting project. And that is One White Street. That is a restaurant you're opening on uh, White Street in Tribeca. 
um, in New York City. Just a little sidebar, a million years ago, I worked at the Soho Weekly News, and we used to have our Christmas parties at the Mud Club with, like, the B-52s and nice. talking heads. So I was in that neighborhood before you were even born. So it's a very <laughs> cool neighborhood. Plus there's some history about, you know, your location and all that when we'll get into yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But, but let's, music, let's uh, start from let's... the foundation up and we'll get to everything. Um, when did you start planning the project? You know, give me a little background. How did it come about? Yeah, so the project has been in the works for a while. Um, we... You know, when I, when I started Verve, I didn't think I would get back into restaurants. Um, or if I did, you know, I just wanted to do it kind of on my terms. But um, we, uh, it kind of all started with a trip to France. Um, I was with Thomas Pastichak from The Nomad, good friend. Um, yes. I think we were visiting the Rhone, maybe getting ready for our Rebuild de Rhone event, I believe, uh, meeting with winemakers and such. And um, we were leaving. We were heading back to, to New York um, and stopped through Paris on the way back. And... Um, you know, I'd always heard of Frenchie and um, always wanted to go, but had never been. Uh, Thomas knew Chef Austin, who was the uh, the chef there at the time. And so he hit up Austin and was like, hey, can we can we swing by? Um, so we ended up at Frenchie Wine Bar, um, and Chef Austin was there, and he cooked for us, and he came out to the table and kind of hung out and shot the breeze with us for a while. And I just remember leaving thinking like, wow, A, this, this food was phenomenal. And B, that guy was like super cool and just great to talk to. Um, and it's cool that he's like an American guy living in Paris doing this thing. Um, anyway, so he and I just ended up kind of staying in touch. And, um, you know, I kind of floated the idea of doing a restaurant uh, here in the city if, if and when he ever wanted to come back to New York. Because um, I could probably Wait, help back, put When was together. the trip to Paris? Just for I time. I think that this time. was uh, this would have been I think sometime in 2018. Okay, not that long ago. Yeah, I mean three years right. ago. So um, that's how you met uh, Austin. Keep going. Yeah, and then uh, you know he he did hit me up. Um, it's like, hey, you know, I would eventually like to come back to New York. I would be very interested in opening my own place. And if you think you can help me do that, then let's let's explore it. Um, Wow. And that was, that was kind of it. Uh, and then we, we found the space, um, just kind of searching around with, at, you know, as people do, just looking at spaces all over the place. And, um, it just kind of spoke to us on a number of levels. We loved the location. Um, I liked that it was kind of right up the street from French Ed and the Tard and some of these kind of really yeah. great places down already. here. Exactly. So it's got a kind of good, good neighbors. Um, we're right close to Franklin street one stop. So it was convenient for, for that. Um, it's on this little corner. Um, the space is just really cool and really quaint and really interesting. Um, and I love the, the background of the story of the building um, and the connection to... Tell me a little uh, about that. You know, so the, the building itself was built in the early 1800s. Um, I've seen 1805, I've seen 1825, somewhere in that realm. Um, the claim to fame, though, and it's a four-story townhouse building, just to kind of put that out there. So it's it's... Most of the building was residential. Second, third, and fourth floor was residential. First floor at one point in time was a cafe before we took, took over. Um, but the claim to fame for the space is in 1973, um, John Lennon and Yoko Ono, um, kind of as a joke, created this conceptual country called Newtopia. Um, and the reason they did it, John Lennon was, was in a little bit of trouble uh, with immigration. He... Um, I guess got busted smoking some weed or right. had some weed on him or something like that and they were going to kick him out of the country and his way to try to get around it he and Yoko was to um, create a country that they could become citizens of and claim diplomatic immunity um, and not get kicked out so cl very clever uh, and they made One White Street their Newtopian embassy address um, for whatever reason. I actually have no idea what their connection to the space was, but that they, they made this building their Newtopian embassy address. Were they ever physically in it or just picked the address? I, I don't know if they ever lived here. I don't think they did. Um, I don't think they owned the building. I think maybe they had a friend or something that right. owned the building, and that's why they chose it. random. I, yeah, yeah I've, trust me, I've dug into this. I, I can't figure it out. I don't know um, why they chose this, this address. Um, but they did, and so there's this kind of connection to it. And, you know, when Austin and I heard the story, we kind of started digging into what Newtopia was because they actually did make a big thing about Newtopia. And Newtopia is this conceptual country that has no lands, no boundaries. Um, you can become a citizen of Newtopia simply by being aware of its existence. 
um, which we thought all these, all this, the philosophy and the concept of this was really interesting. Um, and during their press release in 73, um, there was a line in there that they, they said and that they wrote down that we both thought was really interesting. And it says, Notopia has no lands, no passports, no boundaries, only people. Um, <laughs> and when we read that, we kind of thought, you know, this is really interesting because it's, 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 there's an essence of hospitality there. It's basically saying, like, everyone is welcome. You right. know, you can, you can become a citizen of this country by just being aware of its existence. It's your mantra. Um, if there's no, you don't have to be in a certain place to be a part of it. You know, it's like, please, any, anybody can come and be welcomed here. And um, we just love that kind of essence of hospitality that, in that messaging. So, um, you know, we've tried to take that and, and try to find ways to embody some of that philosophy into what we're doing here in the restaurant. Um, and, you know, not in a, in a, you know, tacky way whatsoever. You know, there's so, no like. So tell me about the food and wine concept. And I know you're partnering with a farm, right, up in the Hudson Correct. Valley, which is kind Correct. of a big part of, you know, the concept. You yeah. Know, let, let us know what to expect. Food, food and experience-wise, we basically, you know, Austin spent all his time at Frenchie in Paris. Um, he was running both the wine bar and the restaurant and their restaurant in, Paris, in, uh, in London. Um, and he was with them for about three years, helped them get their first Michelin star. Um, and... I loved it there. I went, ended up dining there a few times um, since that first visit. So we're like, look, you know, Frenchie had this kind of really interesting concept where it was the, the restaurant on one side of this little street. The wine bar was across the street from it. You could bounce back and forth. Um, the vibe over at the wine bar was kind of very laid back, fun, energetic, louder music, high top tables, um, you know, a la carte menu. And the restaurant was a little bit more polished up. Um, tasting menu, reservation only, it's very small. We're like, we love this concept. Let's basically just do Frenchie, but we don't have a little alley with multiple spaces on either side right. of the street. We have this building that has multiple floors to it, so we just did it vertically. So we basically have um, a little bit of a, it's, it's not actually a wine bar because we'll have cocktails and some, some other beverages besides wine. Um, but on the first floor, it's a little bit more of a bar vibe, um, some high top tables, relaxed a la carte menu. Um, and then upstairs on the second and third floor will be our tasting menu. Um, you know, a short, you know, medium sized tasting menu. We're looking at like six courses. Um, but you know, we, the vibe is the energy we want to bring is this balance of kind of high standards, great food, really thoughtful cuisine, really fresh, ultra seasonal, but, but make it really fun too. Like either he and I are both not as much time as we both spend in, in, you know, high-end Michelin star dining rooms and, and kitchens, we're not uh, we're not like stuffy people. We want things to right. be really energetic and fun, and we want to like get pumped up by the music that's playing on the playlist, and you know, right. have it be a good time. So, um, so that's kind of the, the the energy and the concept. Where are you um, taking the wine? You know, the wine's in Audrey's hands. Uh, and where is she yeah, taking I, I'm, it? I'm, I'm the, the wine guy, and I think everybody thinks I'm going to be doing the wine here. I'm not. <laughs> I, right, you know, you're the business I, I'm guy. A, I'm done with that part. Yeah, so um, I'm really what do, excited what, so to So what do you know she's doing? So the list, I think, is going to be very global. Um, she'll have stuff from all over the place. I know her... Um, kind of the key tenets to the the program are going to be um, kind of sustainability on the kind of the nice. farming front, um, very hands off uh, winemaking techniques, you low know, intervention. low intervention stuff on that side. Um, and she's also putting a lot of emphasis on a diversity of backgrounds of the winemakers and the families behind the, the labels. Nice. So, um, and and obviously also a very uh, food friendly approach. So really taking cues from the seasonality, of the menu to emphasize the the different types of wines that she'll be carrying. It's a small. It's going to be a, a relatively small list. We'll have a couple hundred selections, but nothing right. not huge like a EMP style list. It's not a lot of space here. It's a small restaurant. Um, but you know the idea will be um, things will be changing and kind of rotating through all the time so in summer we'll likely see some more high acid whites and chillable reds and stuff like that and then you know richer spicier right. more savory types of things in the winter so to speak sounds um, good but stuff uh, you know from all over 
Right. So, so it'll, it's curated to all those things you described, diversity, sustainability, exactly. seasonality. Yeah. Um, that sounds exciting. Did, <clears throat> excuse me, did the pandemic delay opening, finding a place? I mean, not the effects of the pandemic when it hit. But I, well, I guess that's what I mean. Did the yeah. pandemic we sidetrack <laughs> things? Big time. Uh, yeah, we've been delayed on this thing. I don't know how many times I've lost count. Uh, the pandemic is certainly one of the reasons. You know, right. Just to throw on top of I went of into this else. very naive, too. You know, opening a restaurant in a former townhouse space um, re requires a lot of engineering and code and, uh, yeah. um, you know, landmark stuff and all frustrating sorts of right things yeah bureaucratic stuff that you need to go through that just makes it very uh complicated and difficult so um you know there's that the pandemic obviously slowed everything down that probably added six to eight months onto everything uh so we're you know we're, we're definitely way behind schedule but we're excited when are you to opening? finally be going here early june we'll say and, that and does that let's talk about uh, a pandemic world now um, by then, the mayor will have opened up indoor dining to normal levels. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we're looking at it's I think they're getting back to 100 percent very soon, I think by early July. So um, you worry about employee safety? I mean, what's well, your feel? I think, you know, we're we're um, heavily encouraging our whole team to be vaccinated. Okay. Um, right now, I believe everyone that's here at the moment is vaccinated fully, which is great. Okay. Um, you know, we're going to follow all of the CDC guidelines for safety and keep things socially distanced and wear masks and have sanitizer and, you know, take temperature checks and, uh, right. you know, all, all the things. So, um, you know, we're taking all the proper precautions. So, but I think, you know, the sentiment that I'm feeling from everybody, uh, both guests and, and employees, is that you know, I think everybody's just kind of ready to get the things back to normal again. Um, yeah. You know, we're, we're all taking the proper precautions still, but kind of ready to start putting this whole thing behind us. Uh, you know, we talk, I think we're in a good spot to do that. We talked offline about, you know, how the restaurant industry is you know, changing and going through changes. I'm guessing part of it is the pandemic. Obviously, you have to take all this stuff into consideration. Um, anything else? I mean, do you think the way you've designed the restaurant, the menu and all that is, you know, where things are going? I mean, I know it's not a singular vision of yours, but, um, you know, are, are there changes that you see? Yeah, I, th I think I think we're at a really interesting inflection point in the restaurant industry right now um, as things start to reopen post-pandemic, um, where there's been a lot of learnings, I think, for everybody over the last year, both from a business standpoint, an employee standpoint, culture standpoint. Um, you know, there's I think there's a lot of things to take into consideration now when reopening, either reopening or opening a new restaurant. Um that I think we need to be really thoughtful about. And, you know, I, I can't uh, I can't disclose too much at the moment because we're still working through a lot of exactly what we're doing, but we're we're trying to be very thoughtful and um, in the way that we operate um, both from a staffing and kind of internal culture and, um, you know, I do, operation I devoted, standpoint. I devoted a handful of shows, you know, last summer about diversity and how screwed up the industry is and, you know, how people weren't treating the pandemic seriously. So right. you you're you see a business as more sensitive to all of those things, even going back to the wine list that you described. Right. hundred percent. Yeah, I think we're you know, we, we need to be very focused on those things now. Um, I think if we're not, then we've missed the whole freaking point of this last year, right? Right. You know right. what I mean? Like, the the it's been a shit year for everybody. There's been Agreed. a lot of crap that's happened. But if we don't kind of take what's gone gone down and learn from that in some way, shape, or form, uh, both from as a society, as people, as human beings, as businesses, as operators, as as friends, you know, as family members, and and kind of change how we do things moving forward, then I think we've missed, there, there's a bit of a gift that's been given to us uh, with all of that. And um, I think if we don't 
learn I, from I, it and move forward in a in a better way than you know we've we've failed. I'm so. not patronizing you, but I think you're a guy that can do that, and I think you can pull it off, and I hope you do, and get to where you want to, and I hope it could be, you know, a model, um, you know, for other people. Yeah, um, we'll we'll see. I mean, noodles. you know, there's some business things too that I think need to change, and you know, we could have a whole another conversation around restaurant pricing and how restaurants operate. And yeah, that's you know, um, we, we could spend hours <laughs> on any. You know, we'd still be talking oh. about the quarter mist of sommeliers if we stayed on that topic. Yeah, I, we won't need to get into that today. Yeah, but, but I, know, I would love I, to ch check back on all of that. You know, yeah, to, to you those where, issues because like very the top of mind for for us, and we're we're working on how. We're going to come out of the gates. So um, that's exactly what I was going to say. You know, you got to kind of do the do and talk the talk. You know, everybody's sort of identifying, you know, what's wrong and what has to be done. Now it's got to be done. And, you know, even after the court thing and all the diversity issues in the restaurant industry, it still seems a little slow to me, you know, so you're taking a good first step there. Dustin, we have about five minutes left. And one of the fun things we do on the show is our wine list, where I ask every guest five questions about their preference. You have done this before. You and Thomas have done it together. Um, I want to get an update on it. So, cause we don't have a lot of time and cause you should know this stuff cold. I'm going to ask you five questions and don't dwell on them and just answer them to your best. And these are the same five questions I've asked you before. I've asked everybody. We have a database of over 200 great wine people in their property. So the first question is, what are you drinking now? What's, what are you and Natalie drinking? What's in the fridge? You know, what are you tasting for the restaurant? Whatever. What, what's on the table now? Uh, lots of Chenin Blanc. Okay. Is that fairly recent or you've always been a Chenin guy or Pascaline? visited you yesterday I and mean, why <laughs> um no i would say it's, it's been my go-to white wine now for the last i don't know year and a half two years okay so it's fairly Something recent like that. it's a shit i like do to you... drink a lot of white wine and i like acid but i also like texture so um do you it's... have one or two makers that you like yeah um i mean you probably laugh at me because they're they're harder to get but the um the uh bernadou stuff Yep. Les Anglais, th those wines are awesome. Um, I don't know. Another one I've been having a lot because we, we have it at the shop is Michel Autran. Is Belle, the, the Belle Vivre. Autran, the last name. A-U-T-R-A-N. A okay. Um, but you have it at the shop, so people can get yeah. it there, right? Okay. And, and, right, and so like that's the Chateau, Chateau de Bonazo stuff I love. Okay. All right, so I'm going to take that as a singular answer, which I love. It's Shannon, and you recommend it. Um, some good people. Um, you're around food a lot. You were around. You're going to be around. But I want to pin you against the wall and ask you your favorite wine and food pairing. What what just goes well that you like? Obviously, you're not eating it every night, every week. But what great wine? What what do you go ooh ah for? Uh, the food would be tacos, and the wine okay, could be <laughs> the wine would be a lot of things. You know, it could be Shannon again. It could be uh, just a light kind of chillable red, which could be like umpteen number of things. It could be Beaujolais. It could be, be Schiava. Um, it could be a taste of actually more. really quirky, cool Kadarka wine yesterday. Um, Spell that. K a d a r k a Kadarka. Okay, that's that's new um, to the Grape Nation wine list. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a new one. good. That's good. <laughs> Remember, I said we don't want to dwell. All right, this you should be able to answer this, but I don't want you to stumble because you think you're going to be exclusive or whatever. But it's a perspective thing. Not the question is your favorite wine restaurant and or bar, and it's it's within the context of who's got that cool list. Who's knowledgeable? The vibe is great. You know, not everyone pulls that off. So, right. You know, who who's good at that? You know, where you go in and you just feel comfortable about everything. Are you okay answering that? You know, I haven't dined out a lot in the last year, Sam. Um, we'll talk about that so... in a second. <laughs> anything I, from I, old days? 
Yeah, I mean, my favorite place to go before the pandemic, if I wanted to drink wine, was Compagnie de Vins or Natural, Caleb's I, place. In, I, uh, I agree with you, and that comes up on the list a lot. Um, um, if it was closer to me, I would probably be at Four Horsemen all the time. Right. Um, but it's very far yeah. away from the Upper West Side, so I don't go there very those often. Are, <laughs> those are two good ones, and, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head with, you know, what I asked you as descriptors, you know, vibe list, even throw the food in and all that. Because um, both of them have great chefs, which it sounds like you're doing the exact same thing in Chicago, too. Um, fourth question. The question was, and I bet you the first time you answered this, you answered it the way I don't want you to answer it. The question is favorite all-time wine. I initially asked it like, Dustin, what was the most rare, expensive wine you've ever drank? You know, you're in the business. I sort of don't care about that anymore. I care about that wine throughout your career, your life, whether it's at a restaurant or at home. That wine that just was very important to you, you know, created a change in awareness. What's a wine or two, you know, that's significant to you? Um... If I had to pick one, that's a good question. It might I mean, actually I, I, be... I, I don't want to just... But it could be... You may not even like ruin art, but it's like the favorite champagne you had when your daughter was born. You know, so that's... But what I'm saying is it's it's about everything, you know. So give me yeah. that. You know, I, I always go back to Northern Rhone. I, I know that's probably boring at this no, point. No, it's not boring. One of my, <laughs> we kicked the year off with Jean Gonon. Exactly. Yeah, that was going to be the wine I, I was going to say is Jean Gonon's wine um, from St. Joseph. And, and before you kind of give me crap for, you know, because it's kind of pricey now and it's very hard to get. The reason that that's the wine is, A, I love Rhone because, um, you know, that was the place that I've gone to the most to visit wineries. And, you know, I'm fr very friendly with a lot of these winemakers. But, um, but also, you know, I first tasted that wine when I was living in San Francisco, working at RN74, and we had it, you know, case stacked, and we were pouring it by the glass. Right. And I just thought, I thought this stuff was just like readily available all the time. And we had cases of it at home, and it would be like our random post-work Tuesday night, Crazy, you know, right? wine of choice out of the little wine fridge in the kitchen more often than I can than count. Uh, we had like all the Vavine and everything just kind of hanging around. I was very... Uh, you know, lived in a bubble there. Do you have a favorite there. vintage? I mean, when you go from years the wine back that to I current? The wine I think about the most would be the VAV in 06, because um, it was the first vintage of that. That's what we had at the house in San Francisco. We had a bunch of it. We drank it all the time. Um, and for me, that's a memory of, like, a great time in, in my life. It was, you know, it's a, it's that, a wine from a region that I really love. It's uh, that's every time I see that wine, that's what I think about. So that's how uh, you answer the question. And yes, yeah. it did get expensive and so did Burgundy and a lot of other wines. It is still right. somewhat available. And at the price, it still rivals, you know, a lot of wines that are substantially more. So I'm not giving you crap for that. All right. Last question. And if you friggin' can't answer this, no one can. Best wine around 15, 20 bucks. You know, my kids are in their 20s. They can't bring crappy supermarket wines to parties. They can't afford $45. So how do you impress somebody at a dinner or for a gift for 15, 20, 22 bucks? Give me a red, give me a white. You could do region like Muscadet. You give me specific makers if you can. What do you got? Oh, God. Uh... Oh, stop complaining. <laughs> um let's see white wine <sighs> can you get shannon in that price range or no actually more? yes yes i'll give you the wine shannon uh the clos de midi from uh c-l-o-s arno lambert arno lambert lambert okay. it's l-a-m-b-e-r-t yeah. um he's in he's in breze he's in uh samur to be it's some. It's a Sommelier Shannon. It's called Clos de Midi. It's cheap. It's freaking awesome. That's what I'm and looking for. Like now, give me a red like 20 that, bucks. and don't start whining again. Like reds are so much harder. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, this is just top of mind. This is, I wouldn't say this is the top one, but just this first one that came to mind is, um, you know, uh, Punta Crena, the, the winery from Liguria. Yes. They, they make a uh, a rosé. 
Um, and this is just Tell popping that. in what my head Rose because Essay? we talked about Liguria earlier. Uh, Rosé is just a really light-bodied, um, very chillable red wine from Liguria. Uh, and that really falls tasty. into fifteen twenty-two bucks. Yeah, it's maybe it's like in the twenties, okay. maybe like mid twenties, low twenties. Right, I think range. I'm okay with it's, it. It's in the I think it's in the range. Yeah, it's, with inflation it's and tasty. the pandemic, the questions price keeps going up. So yeah, throw it in the yeah. fridge, pop it on a hot day. It's awesome. All right, admirable job there. You can breathe deeply now. <laughs> All right, listen, so we got to wrap. We got to wrap up. Um, All right. Couple things I want to mention. I wanted to congratulate you. It's been four months. You had your first child, a daughter. Thank you. I, I have three kids, and you know that it's life changing, and you never realize what the word love meant until you have a kid, right? And with all, yeah, you know, I would, I would uh, label you entrepreneur. You know, with multiple stores and restaurants, and you know, taking on online and all that stuff. Always make time for your kid, okay? Yes, sir. You know Because it. you're in a business where it's going to be hard to find. So, you know, keep your priorities straight. And that's yeah, my dad yep. lecture, and I'm done with it. All right, I got to do a quick wrap-up. Um, <laughs> if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. On Instagram, we're at SBenRuby. On Twitter, we're at BenRuby. But you can always use the hashtag The Grape Nation on both to get to us. Also, we're trying to build a community on Clubhouse. So follow us at Clubhouse. Follow us on Clubhouse at BenRuby. Um, I didn't say this, but I want to make sure everyone knows we will post Dustin's wine list on our social media sites, you know, more towards early next week. Um, Dustin, if people want information on everything we talked about, uh, Verve Wine, One White Street, following you on social media, give me some places to go. Yeah, you can follow me uh, at Dustin Wilson MS on Instagram. I, I tend to make announcements there. One White Street is um, it's just at One White Street is our okay. Instagram. It's not much on there at the moment, but we'll announce the opening there. Right. Uh, and then follow all things Verve at, at Verve Wine. And if you go to Verve Wine, you sign up for your multi-weekly emails, right? Which is yeah, what you can we sign were up talking for the emails. About. You can follow us on Instagram. Okay. Um, check out our wine club. All kinds of stuff. There you go. Yeah. Um, Eric Asimov, who's on in two weeks, just did a story on wine clubs. Um, which is a big thing now. So that's another discussion. All right. I want to thank our guest, Dustin Wilson. Dustin, thank you for coming back. I picked May as a month to check back with old friends. And you are certainly an old friend. And there's a lot going on. And it's a lot of good stuff. Um, and like thank I you, said, Sam. I, I wish Always you well. Always a pleasure. Thanks to our engineer, Matt, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio you can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you want to be part of the food world's most innovative community Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.